Ruiz. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon to pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get, uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership a founding member of the UK's super tight funk jazz fusion R&B band, the New Master Sounds, drummer Simon Allen. Hi. Since, since 2001, the group has released a dozen fabulous studio albums with, uh, with several fiercely played live albums and toured relentlessly to spread its James Brown inspired grooves globally. From across the pond, Simon, how are you? Hello, very well, thank you. Yeah, very pleased to be uh, invited onto onto your show slash podcast. Very pleased to to have you and to listen to uh, the music for many years, and you've uh, provided a lot of joy to these eardrums. So thank you. Where whereabouts are you in the UK? So I'm talking to you from Leeds, um, which is 200 miles due north of London, uh, and this is where the band um met in uh well the the new master sounds started here in 1999 so it's just over 20 years ago and uh i'm the only person left living here everybody else has uh, moved further afield um so our bass player lives in menorca in spain uh the keyboard player joe tatton he lives in the uk but he's about two hours south of me and uh, our guitarist and co-founder, Eddie Roberts, currently lives in Denver, Colorado. Oh. Um, 
he married an American, and so he um, he's the only one who doesn't keep having to apply for these pesky visas. <laughs> yeah, I just actually um, talked to someone from Denmark yesterday, and she's having uh, some challenges, you know, getting the work uh, clearance to, to come back out here and play again. To come to the States? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, it, it was a complicated uh, thing for us. Um, we, we think we've got it pretty much nailed now, so but it's still a bit of a pain in the ass to, to do every year. Um, I think we've minimized the hassle, but it's quite expensive. And um, it'd be nice if we could just just to say to them, look, we've been coming every year for 15 years. <laughs> um, we pay taxes. Honestly, like we, we, we mean you no harm. You've got our fingerprints. Let's, why don't we just default, like we can come and you know, if there's any trouble, you can re review it. But <laughs> no, but at least I get to visit the U.S. Embassy once a year in London, and mm -hmm. and I don't go to London very often. So that's kind of it, it can be a fun trip. Well, I hope to get over there one day. Uh, not been so. Aha! Right. Yeah. Well, bring an umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> very foggy here today. As a matter of fact, so you should say that it's kind of rare, but. Yeah. Um, so, Simon, how did you first get into drums? You know, how did you get on a track with music? Um, well, my first musical output was on a piano because we had an upright piano in the house that I grew up in. And um, I had an affinity for it. I had lessons. And then they teach. I was at about eight years old and the teacher, uh, after a while, started talking about exams and I just had absolute terror and I just said I don't want anything to do with this anymore I, I feel like I've been trapped um and she just as I was leaving she just said okay well you don't need to carry on having lessons with me or do exams but promise me you'll always still play and and I, I can sort of imagine her bony finger pointing down at me I was tiny um and uh, and I said okay and I, and I did I carried on playing but I I didn't really have much direction and I got through uh to maybe about 14 15 years old and um i got in a in a band with some friends and we were doing covers of uh pink floyd songs and Jimi hendrix songs and somehow i was playing keyboards in this arrangement i don't quite know how that fitted in um to that music um but i just remember being really envious of the drummer and whenever we had a break i would quickly go and sit behind his kit and have a go on it and he would be really annoyed <laughs> and i think i realized that that was probably where I wanted to be. And uh, when I was maybe 17 or so, I got my own drum kit. And uh, and then when I went to university in Leeds, which is where I am now and I've never left, um, I, I, uh, I, I got into a couple of blues bands playing drums, but I was also still playing piano and I didn't quite know which direction it was gonna go in. And um, I just ended up more interested in the drums at that point. Um, and then, uh it was me it was meeting um our guitar player eddie roberts uh in about 1996 and he was looking for a drummer who wasn't very good and <laughs> because he was he was at leeds music college and he was surrounded by these trained uh musicians or people who were schooled and he wanted a raw uh, approach and um my friend brought him back to our house and said well Simon here plays drums and he's he's not very good. 
so so i auditioned and and, we, and the sound that we made just seemed promising i think um and uh so he then provided me with a whole load of tapes uh, cassettes of uh, soul jazz boogaloo sort of tunes and said listen to this kind of stuff and you know try and absorb it and and i guess that was really uh probably that 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 was the beginning of the thing that has still been going now um prior to that i was i i, I remember getting involved in some covers bands and being all the music that i got into was in was at the time this is in the 90s 20 years old so it was all early 70s funk and soul and you know call and the gang and bill withers and all that kind of stuff um and that was that was what i was listening to um the whole time that the 90s was happening i didn't pay any attention so now if i'm in a trivia uh quiz or something and and there's a question about 90s music i i may as well not have been there because <laughs> i just didn't pay any attention all the, i was i was all, always going about 20 to 25 years back what, why do you think that was was there someone in your family or a friend who kind of turned you on to that music uh well no i mean it was uh the, the, when i the, the first discovery of of funky stuff was in about 19 ooh, 1989 um, a friend, in, when I was 16, a friend introduced me to um, a, an English uh, Hammond band called James Taylor Quartet, JTQ. And that was a, a, a British Hammond player and a rhythm section. And they were doing covers of um, like Gene Ammond, uh, like the Jungle Strut they did, and they did Starsky and Hutch theme. And I didn't know anything about the music that they were influenced by. This was, they were sort of presenting it and this was, as far as I was concerned, a contemporary band, but it switched on this interest in the funky syncopation that I wasn't getting from Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and that's the, the stuff that I, the rocky stuff that I was, and the doors that I was listening to at the time. Um, so it, it just switched me towards funk and soul. And then I delved into that and then discovered what they were listening to. and. Uh, and then the recording sounds from the 70s, I just felt that everything took a bit of a wrong turn in the 80s in terms of the production sound. And that the way that drums and bass and you know Fender Rhodes keyboards and, and Wurlitzer electric pianos, they were all recorded even in pop music in the 70s. You know, even Hall and Oates at, at like mid 70s, late 70s, that was just a righteous, honest sound that mm -hmm. I don't think has ever been improved upon. And so I kind of got stuck there <laughs> in terms of my taste, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm right there with you. Um, <laughs> but of course, John Bonham, though, did have some <clears throat> funk influence and, and he in turn also, I think, influenced some of the funk players, but. He did, and, and I was, um, uh, so Bernard Purdy, uh, I, I got to meet him a few years ago uh, at a festival in Florida when he was um, he was there as a kind of floating artist at large and that meant that he was just able to go and sit in with various bands and that was what he was being paid to do so he wasn't there with any particular band and um, he, he approached us and we arranged to have a uh, a double drum kit situation for our set 
and that was amazing um and I, I was already into purdy but so i i tend to waffle and ramble a bit i hope that's okay for the style of this show but um uh the purdy shuffle uh which he demonstrated on all the, in the, the couple of those steely dan tracks like home at last um is one of them that was i think built upon by bonham i think it was that way around so for for that song fall in the rain bonham does a sort of version of purdy's purdy shuffle but he he modifies it slightly and anyway i didn't know anything about because i didn't really pay much attention to to studying drums i was more interested in playing with other musicians and and listening to music in a, and letting it be absorbed in a in a general sense but in recent years I, i've um i started teaching drums and that's caused me to look more deeply into what's actually going on and examine what i'm doing and how i'm doing it and in the course of that i i looked at the, the purdy shuffle and then i looked at the john bonham's version of that and so i i'm sort of now in a position where i can enthusiastically talk about it but if you if you'd have interviewed me five years ago i might have just said oh i don't know i, I just hit them <laughs> yeah so uh forced you to kind of go back and and learn more about the uh, technique and um the actual um what's not fundamentals but um i just the the yeah not the not the not not so much the what what do we call them rudiments um but just more uh, examining in detail what people are doing and seeing how that could inform what i can do and uh, earlier on i was i was teaching uh a a, a kid a, a, my friend's son and he had sent me a message in the week saying oh uh here have a look at this can you have a look at this track because i'd like to i'd like to study it in the lesson and he sent me um in the stone by earth wind and fire mm -hmm. and uh our bass player pete chand had shown up about three months ago to us to us at one of our sound checks in the us uh and he was he was playing that groove on the bass but per, note perfect i said whoa that's earth wind and fire and he said yeah i've been i've just been at home like getting stoned and and uh playing along to really listening to these earth wind and fire bass lines playing in the stone stoned okay yeah exactly and i said oh well i i i should really learn that and then we can play it together in the next sound check for fun um but this kid um got in touch and said can we do this in the lesson so i said right that's that's it that's all i need to know so i i came in and i put a good half an hour into it and, and then pulled it apart and put it back together again and um and i got pete to send me that he he recorded the bass line in spain and emailed it to me today so him playing through the whole track on bass and i recorded myself playing the drums and and then we had the lesson and it, it was great and the kids really promising he, he he can do it all he just needs a little bit of help just analyzing some of the time that's going on and i was really i thought oh i'm, I'm qualified to do this this is great and I, so uh, i'm hoping he'll send me more interesting stuff to to teach him because uh, it's it's how i'm going to learn <laughs> neat um so simon were there some drummers though specific players that influenced you early on you know um, in, in the in the early days of the new master sounds or rather the master sounds which was the precursor which was me and eddie roberts and a couple of other guys um 
we were listening to the meters so that's ziggy model east and we were listening to a lot of um boogaloo soul jazz featuring drummers like grady tate and idris muhammad mm. um, and a lot of the funk that i was listening to that i where i didn't know who was drumming turns out it was usually bernard purdy mm. now you know since because the internet didn't exist then so i i often didn't have any way to find out who i was listening to if, if someone had, had given me a cassette compilation of something there's no way to look it up um so it's only later on i sort of find out just how many different tracks bernard was the drummer on and uh that's always kind of gross. Oh, yes, of course. And then you remember the sound of it and realize, obviously, that's him, you know, because he does have his own sound. So though, I guess Ziggy, Bernard, uh, Idris Mohammed, and Grady Tate for the slightly more soul jazzy sound. Uh, I would say my my sound comes from those guys, I would think. Well, overall, when I listen to the band, I mean, I think of influences like, um, you know, the meters, as you said. Uh, Booker T and the MGs, of course, James Brown, um, Jimmy Smith, Tower of Power. Um, yeah. 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 So like that well, whole. The, um, so the Tower of Power stuff, uh, and also Steely Dan is, is, is one of my favorite bands to listen to. Um, that Tower of Power and Steely Dan are much, much more precise than the the style that we play in the new master sounds. Uh, but it but it is a, it's a thing that appeals to me but it isn't really that appropriate within our band. I, it, so it's so it's the kind of thing that I have to do when I'm off duty, if you see what I mean. Um, our, our approach, I don't know if you can hear it when you listen to our stuff, but it's a bit more like the meters in terms of, um, we don't have a strict, uh, like e each bar can be different in a subtle way, whereas, things like Steely Down and Tower of Power, it, it's very, very precise what's going on in terms of the notes that are being laid down by everyone. And that will have been dictated by Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Um, and ours is a more of an improvisational groove, but it still sounds tight because we have been playing together for so long. And so whatever we're doing, it's locked in, but it's, it's it's a sort of loose version of tight. I don't know if you yeah no for sure. I mean Tower of Power. Um, I'm not a huge Steely Dan fan. They're okay. The Tower of Power I enjoy, but they've always been a little too um, you know staccato or whatever. Not quite too clean or in the groove. Um, you know, like Meters or or James Brown or. Um, you know any of the funk bands I really like, like Ohio Players, and um, so I guess you, like yeah, like like me, you like the you do like the ones with the we keep the mistakes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to have that feel. You know, um, you lose some of that feel. I think if it's too uh, precise. Yeah, and I think um, the. I mean, we've never uh, even attempted to to lay down tracks one at a time. So every, everything we record is all all four people playing at the same time and the idea is that if you can get from the start to the finish without a major cock up then and 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 everyone's happy with the feel and some and whoever did a solo felt that that worked that's the take 
and and it, even if you realize that you slightly fluffed something you were trying to achieve you know um a, a note that went slightly awry that's going to stay in because the feel is the more important thing um mm -hmm. so we we do have I, that yeah that's the same attitude i think with a lot of that um the, the james brown and the just if, if the vibe is right the, the people who are listening to it don't care about individual notes <laughs> it's not it's not being made for the, the people that do it's been made for people to dance to <laughs> Well, it goes back to the blues, you know, raw blues, everything that's in there, you know, it's like the whole package and you're not worrying about everything being just so. Yeah. And it's, and, it, and, it, and it's not, it's not precisely planned out in advance because it's a response to how you're feeling in the, in every given moment as well. So yeah, I still have um, tunes that we've been playing for years where if you said to me, what's your drum part for that song? I'd say, I, I don't know until Pete starts playing bass. Because <laughs> I'm just responding to the rhythm that I'm hearing. And I haven't really thought about what I'm actually going to play until I play it. Now, often it will be the same. But but it's, it's more of an unconscious thing, I guess. Hmm. So do you remember your first time on stage as the new Master Sounds? And what was that like? Uh, I, yeah, I think uh, it. I think it was. I believe that it was February '99 in Leeds at a club called the Underground, and we had the four of us plus uh, three horns, and that the horn players were. Um, they were three Scottish guys who went on to have their own band called the Haggis Horns. And you'll find them on um, on Spotify and Apple Music and all that kind of thing. But at the time, they were our horn section. And I believe we had percussion as well. And the music that we played was a combination of original tunes, um, meters covers. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Electric Funk by Jimmy McGriff, which is an album. I know Jimmy McGriff. Um... Not yeah, that so familiar with that track. late 60s, early 70s album called Electric Funk. The drummer on that was Bernard Purdy as well. And we um, we covered maybe three or four tunes from that record. And that was our set. And it was we were playing to a dance floor and, we, and there were DJs playing before and after. So the band was an interlude between DJs. So it was a dance club. And I... Um, I remember that we we rehearsed for it in my basement and we did played for about an hour and i heard a recording of it um on some defunct format like a mini disc or a, a dat or um or a cassette or something something i can no longer play anyway um and i heard that years later and everything was far too fast that's but at the time i wasn't aware of that so it was it was a kind of immature sound i think but it was promising and um we stuck with it and did, did, you, did you rehearse much before that first public performance yeah i think we we probably rehearsed for a few weeks and just to just to try and get the set together um and uh 
and then for a while we were we were working with that ridiculously extended lineup which is four plus three plus yeah i i, I guess at least eight piece and so so that the first time that we were invited to play overseas um it was just really expensive and impractical because we were being paid almost nothing but we had to get eight people from here to spain and back again <laughs> um and after a while we kind of realized that just wasn't going to work so we 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 kind of pared things down back to a, a quartet so a bit more like the the meters you know bass drums hammond and guitar lineup as much for necessity as any other reason like yeah because I, I love horns and i love percussion um but there was there was something that changed so we um because our first album which was released in 2000 featured uh the horns and a couple of vocalists and we performed that um, in uh leeds and london and manchester but there wasn't very much room for improvisation so everything really was played according to the arrangement on the record it was a lot of the songs were three and a half minutes long because that was what would fit on a seven inch single mm. um, and we were releasing seven inch singles uh, and uh also you, the idea of improvising even if we wanted to do it there was just too many people too far away to be able to make split second decisions and then communicate them we just didn't have that set up and when we we, uh, we got rid of the the extra stuff and it was just the four of us we figured out our sight lines and then we realized that we were now free to just do a load more in the moment and we developed a system of communication and so now we can we can just take whatever we're doing wherever we want to take it and back again without having to talk about it in advance because it's Not really verbal. easy to communicate yeah. Um, and then occasionally we we do have horns and percussion and guest vocalists and when well, we currently we're working with a great singer um uh, and he has got into the whole improvisation with us and plays percussion with us when he's not singing but it, it changed yeah get sort of losing the horns and the and the vocals and then coming to the us which we did in kind of 2004 um opened us up to the idea of jamming really and how that was going to be the key to um, keeping our audiences engaged. How, how did you come up with the uh, band name? Uh, well, uh, at the time, uh, our guitar player, Eddie, thought that it was the name of an album. And uh, I think the, the protocol is that you can name your band after another band's album, or you can name your album after another band or something. but. It turned out, we found out a long while afterwards that the Master Sounds um, was a, a band um, featuring Wes, Wes, Wes Montgomery's brother, right? So Wes Montgomery, jazz guitar player. His brother had a band called the Master Sounds and I think Eddie must have seen a uh, an LP sleeve with the Master Sounds on it and thought that it was the name of the record. And, and so for a while we were the Master Sounds and at the point where we uh, we had a personnel change, that's when someone said, oh, you do know there is another band called The Master Sounds? It was like, oh, 
okay well i guess we need to be the new master sounds there at the very least so that was but it there was something about it because we were wearing um suits at the time and we had this kind of 60s like behind you the picture behind yeah. you yeah that's probably the that's the, probably the last time that we were happy wearing suits which is <laughs> maybe 2007 i think um, I can't, I mean, I, I sweat so much when I play drums that I have to wear as, as few clothes as possible. And so if even if I start off wearing a suit, the jacket has to come off. And then if you're not wearing a jacket, you're just wearing a shirt and then you look like you're in an office. So, you know, it looks good in a photo, but it, I, re I remember one of them, uh, because it was so wet after the gig and we didn't have access to a dry cleaner, it just went moldy. Um, just in three days of not being washed. And then it's like, okay, that suit's ruined. This isn't going to work unless we've got a wardrobe assistant on tour with us. <laughs> well, that's when, you know, you're getting a whole different uh, type of funk into the act. <laughs> yes, indeed. The original sense of the word. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, how did you guys get a record deal? Did, did you uh, go independent or did you uh, sign? Um, or what? No, we, the first first record that we released was a seven inch single and it, it, there was an imprint in london called blow it hard records and the logo was a trumpet player and the guy that did it he was just a guy that uh, pressed 500 seven inch singles of things that he liked the sound of and um he had heard a, a, a demo recording that we made and decided that would make a good single we said, yeah, it'd be great to be on a record. So he did it, pressed 500 copies. That wasn't a record deal. It was just, just he pressed our music on a record. I don't know if we saw any money from it or expected to, but it did lead to other DJs hit, sort of hearing it and then being told that, oh, this is a band that's going now. And they were, they were thinking maybe this is an old record that they never heard of from the 60s. Hmm. The sound was pretty um, vintage uh, and that led to the first album and we did that with on a label called barely breaking even bbe records um through a dj called keb darge who's a scottish crazy scottish guy and uh that was quite exciting seeing a, a, a vinyl lp of all our stuff for the first time that was we made it we recorded it in 99 i think it was released in 2000 and uh but we never saw a penny from that and the you know the name of the label barely breaking even should have given us a, a, a two um but it, it, i think we at that point thought we pr should probably do this ourselves if if we're gonna find out if there's any money to be made we probably don't want any middlemen involved. So a couple of years later, we, we decided to um, use the money that we earned from a, um, we did a corporate gig, like, I don't know if it was a wedding or a party, but we, it was proper money, like a, uh, you know, a couple of thousand pounds. And instead of being paid, we decided to invest that in making our own record and then and setting up a, a small label. And that, that label is called One Note Records and that's that's my administrative job that I do when I'm not touring is kind of just handle that side of things. So we, we didn't we never really had a record deal as such. Um, 
it, it was more of a DIY thing. Uh, but it was good having the control and we would we would sell one album and use the profits from that to make the next one all on a shoestring budget but um you don't actually need that much money i mean nowadays you need you need even less money in a way to make a record because the technology is so ubiquitous mm -hmm. um but even back in when whenever this was sort of 2002 2003 um i think we managed to make records for a few hundred pounds rather than thousands. Um, I mean, you might say by listening to them, you can tell, I don't know. But, um, what we were trying to do wasn't very technically complicated. It was just, if we could, if we found a room and an enthusiastic person who was into vintage technology, we could record ourselves all at the same time onto tape and then transfer that into something that we can edit on. Would you typically uh, do many takes per track or, uh, no. and also, um, did you record much that didn't make it onto the record? Um, I think, yeah, that would be, it would be nice if there was a whole library of lost tunes that, that were, that were great, but didn't fit on. But the reality was we would, we would do as many tunes as we needed to make a record. And then we go, okay, we've got enough. Um, and in terms of takes, as I mentioned before, if we manage to make it through from start to finish without anyone doing too noticeable, too, too noticeable a uh, mistake, that was the one we move on. So, so it was only a few days in the studio. We weren't endlessly agonizing over, um, oh, we need to go back and rearrange it. It was just, that feels nice, next song, what is it? And we tend to write in the studio as well. So it's not like we go in with, 12 finished tunes that we've already rehearsed it's more someone's got a germ of an idea and we use half an hour to an hour to flesh that out into an arrangement then we record it and then if it if it really needs more work we might come back to it the next day or it might just be yeah there's nothing wrong with that that's in the can let's start working on the next one did, so, did, you, did you have a producer or arranger per se or you just kind of did that internally um, we had uh, our guitar player, Eddie, has always taken that role. So he's he's had the production ears and and it's quite a raw sound um, generally that we've gone for. So, uh, yeah, and it, I, I guess it's as we've as we've progressed and as we've been together for a long time, his his producer ears have, have developed just like the band has developed in terms of our relationship. And it's like he's two people he's the guitar player but he's also the producer but the, so it's like there's five people he's got two heads on and he knows how he, he can hear how things are going to sound in his imagination before we start something and we all have learned to trust him and, and trust his ears and uh sometimes it takes a while because there's a bit of resistance and we, we're thinking, well, this just doesn't feel right. But uh, he understands how it's going to fit together. Uh, and Or, you know, there might be tambourine that goes on the top that just makes sense of the whole thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I've learned that generally he's right and I'm wrong if, <laughs> I've, uh, if I object. <laughs> so as we go through this, uh, Simon, 
I'm going to talk about some specific tracks that I particularly like and if it conjures up any particular memory or or something related to that please share sure. yeah yeah um, that first record probably for me the highlight was the rooster um, you know I, and that one does have vocals on it but it does yeah the vocalist is Cleve Freckleton um, and I actually uh, saw him a week ago at a friend's birthday party we, end, we ended up doing a, a sort of soul funk cover set um, and I, I don't I don't see much of him anymore because I think he he lives in Bradford, which is you know it's ten miles away. It's, it's far far too far. Um, uh, but uh, our paths don't tend to cross that very often. But there he was, and it was nice to see him again. And so I remember being in my basement, and we were Cleve and I were talking about the lyrics of that song, um, and just going through the concept of this this cocky rooster strutting around and how that, that was a good idea for a funk tune because there were quite a lot of uh chicken related funk <laughs> tunes <laughs> poultry's uh yeah a lot of fun yeah um and uh and it, it made me laugh and i, I just love the horns on it as well and the, the horn starts with a kind of cock-a-doodle-doo um sort of it's it's yeah it, it brings a smile to my face that but I, I, yeah, I remember talking through the lyrics with Cleve on with getting a, a old scrap of paper and just going, Rooster, Rooster Booster, Rooster Booster, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and then it came together. And um, I mean, we we don't get to play that because it really needs Cleve to, mm -hmm. to sing it, and it needs horns. It doesn't make any sense without the vocals and the horns. So once once we were a four piece, we had to say goodbye to that that tune, right? Yeah, what have you got next? <laughs> yeah, that record, that first one, definitely felt some Stax influence, you know, going through that one. Um, and it was four years, it looks like, until Be Yourself came out. Um, so I guess you were riding the excitement of that first record for a few years. Well, that was, I think that that was when we were um, finding out that it was impractical to tour with eight or nine people uh, on a shoestring budget. So we did go to Belgium and northern Spain and had all sorts of adventures of miss, nearly missing flights and rescuing people from uh, strip clubs and all that kind of craziness and coming home and realising that we, we had five pounds each to divide up after being away from, say, Thursday to Monday. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it was great fun and it was and it was it was nice doing that but I, yeah it was about two years and during that time I, uh, towards the end um eddie had started writing some new tunes with a view to making another album i think the four-piece thing so be yourself um I, i'm just trying to think we're about, to, about that's about to come out on vinyl. I'm just remembering because um, a friend who runs a label in the UK called King Underground was keen to to team up, and uh, so he and I have been going through that record and figuring out how to fit it onto two sides of vinyl because it's actually quite quite a few. I think there's twelve or thirteen tracks on it, um, and there are still tunes on that record that we play in the live set now. So. 
a lot of them have endured. Which ones stick out for you? Uh, well, I wanted to say overall on this record, what stood out, what, first of all, definitely more developed and assured than that first one. And uh, more jazzy kind of guitar uh, yes. than the first uh, one. It's the first album, it's kind of noisy, isn't it? It's it's funky. A little bit, yeah. Scratchy and a bit distorted. And there's a cleaner sound to be yourself. Track that stood out to me that I really like is Six Underground. So that's a cover. Do you, do you know? Uh, uh, did you know that was a cover? I don't know the original. Who's, who's, who's the original by? The original is a it's a sort of a UK, I would say, trip hop band called the Sneaker Pimps. Oh, I've heard of them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, that, that's the only song I know of theirs, and it was a vocal track. And the vocal goes, take me down, six underground, it's where I want to be, something like that kind of thing. And that was the melody that Eddie played on guitar for our cover of it. But it was already, I don't know, 96 to 2003, not seven years old, I guess, at the time. And it hadn't been a massive tune. So it was a reasonably obscure song to cover, um, which is what we were after, really. Um, just something that some people would know and, and they would kind of get the reference. And other people might just think, that, well, this is our tune. And, because a lot of the soul jazz guys used to do pop songs, didn't they? Uh, instrumental versions of them. Mm, the hit of the day. So I think it was with that kind of thing in mind. But that tune still an absolute joy to play to this day. And si since we did it on that record, we've kind of developed the arrangement. And now we throw a reggae section in and and it's quite extended. The, the key, I love the keys on that one too. Ah, yeah, that's a, a, a Wurlitzer electric piano, which is one of those little... Uh, sort of is it four or maybe four octaves and it's just got such great attack on the sound hasn't it it's yeah, a, a exactly. little bit of i think it's, is it vibrato or something but yeah i was thinking i, I want to get i mean you can get them on software keyboards now can't you you could computer plug-in yeah i don't know but, if it's the same it's yeah, quite I've, the I've same and the roads in the background yeah, that, um, love that instrument not in great shape and I, I i bought it from our bass player when i was 18 and i didn't know him i answered an, uh, an advert in the the back of a newspaper fender roads for sale 150 pounds and i somehow just about had that and i was a student and i remember going to this basement and picking that up and meeting pete then not realizing i would subsequently be in a band with him for over 20 years wow <laughs> I've still got it there. But yeah, I would like a Wurlitzer, I think. Um, I just, I think they're probably really expensive because vintage keys are shot up in yes. in price. Definitely. Um, so your next record, though, was a live one, right? The first live one? Live at um, La Coba? Um, let me think. It's either that or this is what we do. Um, I'm not sure what the chronology was. Yeah, both 2005. Yeah. Um, I should know because it's my record label, but <laughs> um, so yeah, Lakova is a nightclub in Menorca. Menorca is one of the three Balearic Islands. So you've got Mallorca, which is the big one, Menorca, the small one, and then Ibiza uh, or Ibiza, uh, if you were speaking American Spanish. Um, but the over there they lisp it, so it's Ibiza that uh it's a tourist destination for 
a lot of Brits and Germans and people from Northern Europe who want to go somewhere hot for their summer holiday. And uh, there's a nightclub carved out of the side of a cliff called La Cova, who regularly had uh, international DJs and someone was working there who was a fan of ours, who'd got our records, who wanted to start putting live music on. And they booked us to go over there and we, and it's a pain carrying all this gear down the rocky steps, <laughs> really kind of precarious, but there was, there was no elevator because it's just ridiculous. Um, and then you get there and the, the gig takes place at sunset. So the sun is going down over the Mediterranean behind wow. you. And it's amazing, but everyone who's there is watching the sunset, not you. So it's almost <laughs> like you're sort of in, yeah, in the way, like, oh, I just want to see the sun. Um, but we, we did that and we, we ended up doing it several years in a row. So I think the Live at La Cova was maybe our second or third year doing it. And the guy said, oh, I've arranged for a multi-track recording to be made because I thought you guys might like that. And it it sounded so good that we uh, decided to put it out as a live album. Well, the one I wanted to call out on that one was doing a cover of Spooky. Oh, that's another one that we still do now, uh, 15 years later. Um, and, and that's, I don't know if there was there already an instrumental soul jazz version of spooky or i don't know if that's eddie's interpretation of the of the dusty springfield vocal track um but it was another one that was in that tradition of playing a pop song with the soul jazz lead guitar in in the place of the vocal and it's 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 such fun because it builds it starts really mellow and it really changes gear um halfway through and starts to really cook and on that um we we had sam bell our conga player on that as well and, and you and that really adds to it as well well now that you've painted the picture of what the venue was like i could just sort of imagine it now i mean what a perfect track to listen to with that environment so yeah must have been a great <clears throat> um and when you talk about you know difficulty getting equipment somewhere i was for 15 years a mobile disc jockey and had tons of equipment and the record crates and everything and did a lot of gigs in unusual places like on cruise ships and stuff like that and you know was my own roadie as well as the dj so you know and yeah, also in, in situations that, that, where you know there was a lot of sun beaming down and all kinds of weird predicaments you know so i totally relate um and then the next studio records you said was this is what we do um very uh, interesting version, awesome version, I think, of All Right Now. Uh, now, okay, yeah, well, that is, hang on. Oh, I'm just going blank here, because that's not a cover, I don't think. Like, there is a free song called All Right Now. No, All I Want Right Now. That's All I Want Right Now. All I Want Right Now. It's not a cover. As far as I know, unless Eddie has pulled the wool over our eyes. Yeah, no. Um, that that track though, I like that. I like that one. Yeah, so um it's got I'm just wondering if that version does it have some kind of synthesizer on it towards the end? Um because nowadays when we, we that's another one that we still do, because because it's it's kind of got a rocky feel to it. Um 
but uh, these days Joe sort of busts out a kind of monosynth sound when it comes to his solo. I think there is one on the on the record. It's just a while since I've listened to to that particular album. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's a kind of chuggy, rocky funk. Yeah, that's what I remember from that. Thank <laughs> you. 